0: You're listening to The Ossington Circle. I'm Justin Podor. The Ossington Circle is a podcast that tries to provide a thoughtful, progressive, and informed take on world events. This week, I'm continuing on the anti-war theme. It's not an interview this week, but a lecture that I gave in February on the environment, war, and refugees at York University's Faculty of Environmental Studies. In the talk, I relate the Syrian Civil War to Western foreign policy and also to environment and displacement of people. The idea is to talk to environmentalists and to argue that the uh, war and, in Syria and that war in general is an environmental issue. The topic of the day is in the environment, war, and refugees. And may, some of you may have seen the Scientific American article that described the Syrian civil war as a climate change conflict. A lot of the conflicts in the region are being thought of now as having a climate change kind of component. So the Scientific American article argued that because of climate change, there's been a more severe droughts in the region, which have caused crop failures in the countryside. Also the Russian harvest, which is a major uh, source of food for people in that, Part of the world, but but specifically, they were the argument in that in that article was about uh, drought, which drove rural to urban migration and increased pressure on land and livelihoods, which then increases the numbers of people without um, economic base for their livelihoods, and also <coughs> potentially more people available to fight in a in if a should a war break out. I thought. That was an interesting article, and I think that it is important to analyze both the environmental drivers of conflict, but it's also important to remember that a crisis like this always has multiple drivers. And what I want to argue in the next couple of minutes is that the Syrian situation, the civil war, the war in Syria, I don't want to call it a civil war because there are so many external powers that are involved there now. is being driven by decisions that are being made, very specific strategic decisions by, by powers in, in these countries. It's a mistake to think of it as, as if it's some kind of a natural disaster that's being driven by uh, climate. There are multiple drivers for all of these things, but I do think that, the, that analyzing it in terms of the politics and the decisions that are being made can lead to better insights about how to stop it, how to prevent things like this from happening. When I say a decision or an idea, there's a couple. And one is obviously the idea of war, which I'm going to spend most of my time talking about. But there's another issue. When you think about drought and when you think about pressures on land, there are a number of ways that that a government could deal with these things. There used to be established ways for dealing with these things, even in the region, by the nationalist governments of that region. They, they could, you could do redistribution. You could establish means for social provision through the government. You could even do rationing. But none of these things are as tenable as options in, our, in the times that we live in because we live in a time where there's, from an economic perspective, only really one way of doing things that's acceptable and that, you know, some people call that neoliberalism or austerity, but the point of it is that you know, private initiatives, the market, charity, these are all acceptable ways of dealing with a a social problem like drought or um, people fleeing to the countryside because their livelihoods are being undermined, but for a government to intervene and, and do redistribution or do rationing is not acceptable. It wouldn't be acceptable by the donors if the countries are dependent on foreign aid, and it wouldn't be acceptable by the international financial institutions, whether it's the World Bank or the IMF or the private banks that all of these countries depend on for financing. So that's a problem. Um, we have this specific economic idea of neoliberalism that's blocking our ability to address a crisis that has this natural component, whether it's drought driven by climate change. You could also argue that that this idea of neoliberalism and of driving and of making every economic initiative subject to the dictates of private profit and the market is also a driver of anthropogenic climate change as well. So um, there's a interesting book by someone who works at the, the Land Institute in Kansas named Stan Cox. And he's just a couple of years ago published a book on rationing. And he argues that we do a fair bit of rationing, even though we don't call it that, in healthcare and in other fields. And he goes back to World War II and talks about the successes and pitfalls of rationing, when it can work and when it can't. And he, he's arguing all of this because he's saying if we're going to deal with climate change, we're probably going to have to do some kind of rationing of fuel, of the right to emit. Um, right, Rationing could be a way to deal with scarcity, but we can't do that because we have the market, we have sure. charity, and we have private initiatives, which are all being driven by the financial and uh, donor countries that have power, which is, the title of my talk was about Western policy. And there are, we're here, we have a responsibility in all this, and it makes more sense for us to think about the terrible things that we're doing as opposed to looking across the world and saying, ah, if only these other people would stop doing terrible things, the world would be a better place. Neoliberalism, austerity, in a lot of ways the Arab Spring of 2010, 2011, started as a revolt against those specific ideas. The dictators of the region, many of them had been, you could categorize them as economic nationalists in the 70s, even um, into the 80s, but they had, for the most part, including Assad in Syria and Gaddafi in Libya, they had abandoned that economic nationalism in favor of neoliberalism and the harm that that caused to people in Tunisia and Syria and Libya, Egypt, all of these countries where the Arab Spring occurred, people were, were in revolt against that economic model as much as, as much as for political freedom and against dictatorship. And Syria's civil war did start at that time, but it isn't just an outcome of drought and neoliberalism. And that's where I'm getting to the main thing that I wanted to talk about, which is war. And I think this, the Syria case is a real example of how war kind of feeds war, and especially, uh, especially in the case of the way the West has related to these conflicts. In order to think about that, I, we should, you know, I have this map centered on Syria, but it does cover a whole bunch of countries uh, in which there have been rather severe kind of Western and U.S. interventions over the past few decades. And I actually think that it's really important if you want to understand Syria today to go back to Afghanistan in the 1970s. So Afghanistan in the 1970s had a a government that was, it was a monarchy, but it was reforming. There was a... democratic opening. There were people demonstrating for you know, the same kinds of things. They wanted more rights to assembly, to speech. They wanted to, they wanted to be able to have a free press. And monarchy was trying to be more responsive to this. They were looking to other countries like Turkey and to the Central Asian republics as examples of how to become a more modern establishment. And because they were also close to what was the Soviet Union at the time, the United States decided to sponsor a counterweight to this, which was the Islamist. At the university, at the Kabul University in the 1970s, there were a number of different organized groups. Some of them were more communist or democratic in orientation, or both. These were kind of went together at the time in a way that nobody would imagine today. And Islamists, on the other side, and the Islamists were the ones who were, you know, I don't know if people know Afghanistan today, but it's people whose names you might recognize, like Gulbuddin Hikmatyar or Rabani. But these were the people who were throwing acid on women, uh, you know, throwing stones at women for what they were wearing on campus. And these were the people that the U.S. sponsored. And if you look up, you know, Brit- of the famous uh, U.S. statesman Big New Brzezinski, there's a really famous quote where he says, sometime in the 80s when there was actual war going on, he said, you know, what do we care about a few inflamed Muslims when we're talking about something as important as the Cold War? We're living with that decision as much as anything else. We're living with those kinds of decisions. The people that were sponsored as a counterweight to, you know, as part of the geopolitical goals of that time, are the people that are now the favorite enemy of today. So that's Afghanistan, but the, the Afghanistan war that went from 1979 until arguably is still going on today, but definitely from 79 to 89, and then was followed by a big, long civil war that was 10 years long, and then the Taliban, and then NATO. But that war didn't just transform Afghanistan. It didn't just destroy Afghanistan, because Afghanistan is destroyed. It's 179 or something on the Human Development Index out of 187 countries. This despite all of the billions and billions of dollars of reconstruction aid that has gone in. But it also transformed Pakistan, and it also transformed Saudi Arabia, because these were the countries through which the United States funneled the covert aid and weaponry and methods for um, intervening in Afghanistan. And so the personnel involved, the organizations involved, the money and the weapons and the training, all of that became this kind of machine for sponsoring covert action in the region under a kind of an Islamic banner. I do take issue with calling these Islamic wars because they're much better understood as very specific political projects. Look at the Saudi Kingdom, Pakistan's military and political establishment. Those are pretty, pretty specific institutions. Calling it Islam invokes you know, hundreds of millions of other people that really don't have anything to do with that project. So that's Afghanistan. Then there's the Iraq wars going back to 1990, followed by the 2003 occupation. And there were criticisms of this at the time from the anti-war movement. And they were saying there was an anti-war movement against the invasion of Iraq. And they were saying, if you're worried about terrorism, an occupation of a country like Iraq is only going to make that much worse. Uh, and, of course, all of their predictions came true. And specifically, I, d- I don't know how many people know this, it's, it's definitely reported in the news that the leader of, the supreme leader of ISIS is a graduate of the United States prison system post-occupation. So he went through uh, Abu Ghraib. Another big issue with Iraq was when, when the Americans occupied Iraq, they also basically dismissed fired the entire Iraqi military and bureaucracy, leaving them out in a way that pretty much guaranteed an insurgency. So some of those people have, have gone on to become a part of ISIS. The last case that I think really has fed into the Syrian civil war that I think a lot of scholars and activists haven't really grappled with is the 2011 Libya intervention because this is still thought of and spoken of as if it was some kind of success story because you had a dictator Gaddafi he was overthrown great but what you have now in Libya is it's actually split it's a it's a broken country there's there's two groups that claim to be the government they're fighting each other ISIS is occupying one of the cities, the, the former stronghold of Qaddafi, uh, of insert. The, the, this kind of case study for a successful Western intervention to overthrow a dictator is, I think, a, a case of the opposite. It's, it's another kind of destroyed country, and the effects of, of what happened in 2011 are only beginning to be felt. The message, though, to Syria was was a mixed one. I think the the what the U.S. ended up giving a signal to the Syrian rebels that they were going to do the same job in in Syria as they did in Libya, which kind of encouraged the rebellion to take an armed direction, and then it didn't materialize because every time the U.S. and the Saudis and the Turks added resources to the rebels, the Iranians and the Russians added resources to the regime. So it just... Uh, continues. Everybody keeps adding more and more investment into the war, and the main effect of that is just more war and more destruction and not some decisive outcome for either side. All of this is to say we're now decades into this policy, this strategy by the West of saying, okay, if we don't like a government for Cold War reasons or dictatorship reasons, or economic reasons, then we can go and bomb that country until that leader is gone, and then maybe something good will come out of that. Uh, That is, I would argue, a pretty bad strategy. (laughs) And war's effects are unpredictable. Like, what's going to happen as a result of all of these wars? Nobody can tell at this point. I mean, I don't think when, in 2003, when the U.S. invaded... Uh, Iraq, I don't think anybody predicted ISIS was going to come out of that. In, in 1979, when the U.S. decided to sponsor the Mujahideen, I don't think they predicted 9-11 or Al-Qaeda or even the Taliban. There was no way to predict any of these things. But one very predictable effect of war is displacement on a massive scale. All of the, Every war of the 21st century has been accompanied by massive displacement. Um, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, even in, in this hemisphere, the Colombian Civil War has produced immense displacement. You know, going back earlier, Israel's wars have displaced what are now millions of Palestinian refugees, um, some of whom have been displaced again from Syria and Iraq or are trapped in refugee camps like Yarmouk. That is one definite, predictable outcome of sponsoring a war or of supporting a war. If you're going to support a war, you should know that massive displacement is going to be one of the one of the things that comes out of it. I think one argument against what I'm saying here is to say okay, are you saying that people are supposed to just live under these horrible dictatorships? And what can westerners offer if not bombs? And I would say solidarity, it's a much more like complicated word. It's a, it's a lot less obvious what can be done, but our role is often probably to try to stop our governments from helping the oppression in these places. So Egypt, um, you know, the, the Egyptian dictator today came to power on a huge massacre uh, in Rabi and, and a few other massacres and this is an ally of of the US and a, you know, a friend of Canada. We have fairly good relations. It's a Saudi kingdom is currently bombing Yemen uh, destroying that country and we've just concluded a huge arms deal with a jeep a jeeps deal some would call it an arms deal but our prime minister calls it jeeps means very 15 billion dollars of jeeps are going to Saudi Arabia uh, from here so um that could be uh, you know stopping those kinds of deals could be a help didn 't get into the Kurdish issue, but that has a huge um, part in all this, which is the Kurdish uh, population is divided there are Kurds in Iraq there are Kurds in Syria and there are Kurds in Turkey and all of them are actually under attack. Um, the ones in Iraq and Syria have been fighting isis and they 've actually been fighting isis it 's not a, a phony war they 've been you know fairly successful and they've it 's been like really you know they 're the ones that are really truly in a life or death struggle against uh, ISIS, especially in Syrian and Kurdistan and at the same time as they 're having to fight ISIS, these Kurds are also having to fight and deal with Turkish bombing and the Turkish military attacking them in Turkey and also making life difficult for them. In Syria, through cross border behaviors of various kinds, that would be a help uh, Turkeys in NATO along with Canada and along with the u s we could help the Kurds by helping uh, by getting Tur- asking our friend Turkey to not bomb them so there are there are lots of options available uh, they're difficult. they involve diplomacy, they involve international law they involve solidarity it's long it's it's hard there's a lot of suffering. but I do think that these are all better options than simply war and regime change through war. The last thing is you know the idea of making peace, I think it was an Israeli writer where I read this, but I'm sure it goes back much longer, where he said, you know, you, you, you make peace with your enemies, not with your friends. If they were your friends already, you wouldn't have to make peace with them. The Syrian peace process right now is one in which at least part of the West is insisting that Assad step down as a prerequisite to a peace process going forward. Well, if you're saying I'm willing to make peace with you as long as you're not there, it's probably not going to be a successful peace process. So the idea of making peace with enemies is a tough one to swallow, but I also think it's what diplomacy is based on. So, summary. War is not an answer for anything. Three decades of war have destroyed countries and displaced millions. And As far as linking it back to the theme of this series on dealing with the Anthropocene, if we're going to deal with the problem of climate change, if we're gonna deal with the problem of equality, we're not gonna get anywhere unless we deal with the problem of war. Wherever you look to try to solve some problem, war is gonna be there. And so unless we can find some way to solve this problem, I don't think we're gonna have much success with any of the other ones. That was a lecture at York University's Faculty of Environmental Studies on the Environment, War, and Refugee by me, Justin Poduer. And that is the end of this week's Ossington Circle. You uh, follow the podcast at p o d u r. P O D U R.org. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll conclude with some music by Chris Tesselino.